Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We are all victims of uncertainty. The predictability of what's to come is never fully ours. When you came to college, you probably had expectations of what you would study and how that would shape your future. Yet as you stare down quizzes and tests and even, oh, low those final exams that are just right around the corner that you have not prepared for, or maybe those capstone projects, those expectations of what you came to college for, well, they quickly seem like liabilities to your overall mental well-being. And you don't have to be a college student to understand this, to get this, right? Who among us has not wanted something from their life or their career and been sorely disappointed when those expectations didn't match reality? There is a level playing field, so to speak, for all people when it comes down to what we want and what we can expect. Even the richest person cannot possess everything and the poorest cannot be without something. The ultimate illustration of this is life and death. Neither the richest nor poorest person can, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, obtain eternal life or by unbelief go to eternal destruction. This is where Jesus' words today ought to come and make a difference for how you view life. Our gospel tells us that, where, uh, tells us that there will be destruction, wars, and uh, persecution, and that the Son of Man will appear to the distress of the nations and the fainting of people with fear and foreboding. The world will witness Christ's reappearance with all his power and with all his great glory. Yet what does Jesus say to his faithful in the midst of his foretelling of these end times? He tells us to straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Despite the great and many visualizations that Jesus paints upon our hearts, those words of comfort ought to be our solace when we know what alternative we deserve because of our sins. Jesus is the resurrection, and we are the people of his redemption. The reality of who Jesus is for you individually should immeasurably change your expectations for life and career. To have the certainty of Christ in an ever-changing world makes the unpredictable manageable. In other words, when Jesus is the center of our worldview, we become Christ-centered instead of expectation-centered. To be Christ-centered is to focus on those things that pertain to the messianic promises. Jesus is the Messiah and Christ, both meaning the anointed one, each title coming from the tongue of believers spanning two testaments. From the age of the Old Testament times was the anointed one longed for, and in the era of the New Testament were those dreams realized. Jesus, in our text, lays down what the believers of all times sought for the anointed to do, to end sin and to bring on a heavenly reign. Jesus, in our text, puts into focus how the expectations of this victory actually plays out. 
Jesus, in our text, speaks to us in vivid illustrations of indestructible institutions being destroyed, of great nations and kingdoms being laid to waste. He speaks to us in platitudes of desolation, which make for great distress, where once there was only man-made certainty. Jesus brings an end to sin, and in him the kingdom of God does draw near. But the expectation does not meet the reality in the minds of us mortal people. We would have this anointed one, this Jesus, come without pain, without the trembling of the earth. But Jesus comes and sets our narrative aright. He must go to us if we are to be saved. Where sin is entrenched in the foxholes of our souls, there must Jesus go with full battle armor ready to wage war. Where there is death, there must Jesus go, ready to die for victory's sake. And where the victory is won, bloodied upon the cross of wood, there must Jesus go, to be placed into a tomb, to rise from the dead, to ascend into heaven, and assemble the angels for such a time, when finally Jesus returns in a judgment day that swallows up earth and makes it new again. Jesus the righteous man, the righteous one, became man and cleansed us in his righteousness so we will never fear another fall into sin. But we ourselves are and will ever remain a new creation redeemed in the image of Jesus. His life given to us is a God-made certainty that we can count on. Now, I already know what may be a vicious thought circling in your own heads, nagging at you when you hear a text like this, why couldn't have Jesus done this all in the first place? Why is the fall of man permitted and the final judgment inevitable? There are, are at the same time good theories for the unimaginable things for which we read in God's word and also a Christ-centered worldview that accepts by faith what Jesus says is true and the only way to salvation. This means that we can talk intellectually, we can have conversations about what we presume to be the reason for everything that we encounter in God's word, but, but it also means that we cannot forget that we have every reason to believe that our spiritual situation is precisely the perilous and promise-filled one that Jesus describes to us in our text. I don't know about you, but I'm not ready to bank on God's word being false now, where everywhere else it has come true. Where God is mysterious or our understanding vague, Jesus is not made a liar, and our faith is not in vain. We can only accept what God has told us, and only at our own eternal risk reject him. So anyone who rejects God's word rejects him, and rejects God's love for him or herself. And God's word leaves us with these great mysteries that we cannot reason through or perhaps understand, I like to go through a little exercise to consider the greatest mystery, 
The greatest mystery ever reported is this. How could God ever forgive mankind who had everything given to them only for them to throw it all away? We can only know everything Jesus has done to remedy that wrong. We can only know everything Jesus has done to merit our forgiveness and can only respond, Amen, thank you, Lord Jesus, to this great and merciful mystery of our Savior's work of redemption. All mysteries of creation and a new creation following Jesus' return and everything in between, everything in between hang upon the good news that Jesus has rescued us from sin, death, and the devil. And here's where I want to change things up a little bit and conclude by pointing out the four prominent words of good news that Jesus sets within this terrifying text concerning the end times and the coming of the Son of Man. Here's the first. It was asked of Jesus when the temple in Jerusalem would fall, what signs would accompany it, what should they be on the lookout for? What implications should they look around and see and expect? Jesus first points out himself, warning about impostures and deep fake Christs. What is not yet clear, but will be, is that Jesus himself is the temple, more than the temple made with hands. And he will be destroyed by crucifixion, yet in the resurrection, Restore that temple for all to see. There is also in Jesus' response a very immediate answer that mentions the, the rumors of wars and great disorder. <coughs> to these things, Jesus serves us our first gospel. Do not be terrified. Do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not come at once. What we hear in this sentence is a ridiculous call to comfort in what will be a most horrifying circumstance. We can conclude only one thing. When the temple falls, Jesus Christ remains in charge. It is as we sing. Built on the rock, the church shall stand, even when steeples are falling. Jesus calls his people to a peace in the midst of war to see in him a treasure when all seems lost, to not fear the end of the temple made by human hands, but to fear, love, and trust the temple of the Son of Man. The end of the world would not come at the fall of that temple, but that temple's fall is a prophecy to the end times and the vicious nature that will exist until Jesus returns to us. And we know that this is true. We are not ignorant of wars, or disorder happening all around us. There is an aching in the world, and it's only remedied by Christ, the rock upon which the church stands. Let history then be our lesson, and the faith of those before us be the example that in Jesus Christ we have a comfort out of any chaos, and that whatever takes place around us is not greater than the one who has overcome the world. Jesus is your rock. Second, we can only imagine how terrified the, the, the disciples were as they listened to Jesus relay to them that it was only a matter of time, only a matter of time, before their own eyes would see the temple be destroyed. And it doesn't get better. 
Like a doctor with horrible news, Jesus' further diagnosis is a grave one. He tells them this, the end times with all its persecution and bloodshed isn't going to simply happen all around you, but these things are going to happen to you. Jesus oddly underscores this gut-wrenching news by telling his disciples that this is an opportunity to bear witness. I don't know about you, but that's not exactly the rallying speech that I really want to get behind. This is when you look at a situation and you just kind of tap out, right? You go. But we know the disciples didn't do that. And Jesus knew that they would be preserved because he would go with them all the way. He charged his disciples to not create some sort of talking points for their defense when these assaults would come their way. Instead, he told them, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. I wish for you to consider how important that gospel is for you. Jesus prepares you similar to his disciples for the opportunities in these end times to be a witness to his perfect message. Jesus did not promise those disciples, and neither does he promise any of us that our witness will save us from persecution, but that our adversaries will finally be held accountable to the word of God. We are called to be confident that God will give us a mouth to speak and a wisdom to know what will glorify him in any and every situation. It's not on your shoulders because Jesus is your witness. Third, Jesus prepared his disciples that his name would trigger people's hearts toward hatred. Trigger warning. Jesus. Followers of Jesus would be labeled detestable. And this is not the hatred of things that are unjust, but the hatred of people who believe in a just God. This is a hatred that's hostile, a hatred that Jesus equates elsewhere to murdering someone else in your heart. This kind of abuse and assault breeds doubt. Have you ever doubted as a Christian when met with opposition? I certainly have. It is a sort of cultural waterboarding meant to undermine the certainty of your salvation. Jesus assured his disciples, and now he is coming to assure you, not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Jesus promises to you a full satisfaction. He promises that when you received the Holy Spirit and baptism, it was and is a complete transaction. Your sins are forgiven, and you are declared righteous and holy. Take comfort in knowing that you can endure all hate because Jesus loves you. Fourth, finally, throughout this text, Jesus has coached us through the end times. And to clarify, we are living in those last days, just so you know. Our final word from Jesus today turns to look at that day when he does return. Jesus does not tell us when that last day will come. However, he does set it up that we should regard every day in these last days as the possible day for the day of judgment. There's no knowing, so treat it like he could come at any moment. 
Now, if you're inclined to any sort of paranoia, a statement like that might really mess with you, right? As an example from my own life, I can remember vividly when I was quite certain about my own salvation. Every time, and this might sound weird to you, but every time I got into a car, I would pray God's forgiveness, hoping that these words would somehow have an effect on God, that he would change his view of me. I was certain that God hated me in the righteous or justice sense of that word, that he hated me as a sinner. And I knew, and I still know, today that uh, God does judge sinners. Here's what I lacked. What I lacked every time I drove a car or I was put in a higher-risk environment with farm machinery all around, what I lacked was an appreciation for God's grace. If it seems odd to you that I'd be in such an existential crisis, that's okay. I can deal with your judgment. But I would have a challenge for you that you, if you haven't already, consider your own mortality. To now consider your own mortality and your views about those things and how you view God and, and how he speaks of you, to pair that up or to see that and to take your conclusions and put them next to Jesus' final word of the gospel today. The coming of the Son of Man is a rendering of the heavens into the earth. The veil that holds back our eyes from seeing heaven on earth will on that day behold the great glory of God as he descends upon this world. On such a day like that, we might revert to that paranoia, believing that we are finally found out, that now God will deal with us according to our sins, that we are completely and totally ruined, and that all is lost. Jesus calls you to a peace in the midst of that last day, or if death comes first, to his peace as we contemplate the end of our life. You are to see Jesus as your treasure, as your treasure when all is lost. Today, Jesus speaks to you beautiful words, words of overflowing grace. Straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. To be straightened up means Jesus has restored you from disgrace to grace. To raise your head means Jesus has called you from cowardice to courage. To behold the Son of Man is to be embraced in redemption. Redemption means that Jesus sees in your heart not the sins of your whole life, but only the love he has bought and paid for with his own blood. Well, our lives are driven by great expectations, hopes and dreams for future days, filled with the desires of our mind and passions of our heart. But when the center of our attention is on expectations, be aware, disappointment is close at hand. You can gain the whole world and lose your soul, but even more people recreate their world in the image of achievable expectations to soothe their godless soul. Jesus draws near. Jesus draws near to you and exceeds your expectations with his unexpected love. Born again in you is a Christ-centered soul. 
able to view expectations with the mind and heart of God. In Christ, no matter the circumstance, satisfaction is at hand for you. Because in all things, Jesus is your rock. Jesus is your witness. Jesus truly loves you. And as the Son of Man is coming, Jesus returns, and your, your redemption draws near. Amen.